A reading from uh, 2 Thessalonians today, chapter 2, and the whole chapter. So here we go. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that, not, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to share this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be here again this week. Sadly, I can't hang around uh, afterwards. This week we had our carols last night, which was fantastic. And we still have a stage set up in the hall <laughs> rather than on the court, which was about 50 degrees, I think, yesterday afternoon. So we had our carols in the hall. It was great. I've really enjoyed and benefited from spending the week with the mission team. Half of them are here, half of them are at Godswood Hills this morning and they've just been uh, troopers and faithfully serving and such a blessing. Yesterday morning we were just outside Gregory Hill's shops and they were trying to um, encourage people and invite them to carols, invite them to Christmas, share the gospel with them, giving away water and giving away ice blocks and balloon animals and all that kind of thing. And uh, then we had lunch at my house and it looked like a casualty ward. In the, in the back of my house, <laughs> they all kind of passed out uh, in my back room because it's so hot. We were doing face washes with ice water and 
It was great. They've just been giving 110% and I'm so very thankful to them. And you'll do yourself a favor if you uh, say good day to them at morning tea and encourage them. And more than that, be encouraged by them. They're so uh, godly and faithful and I'm thankful for them. We're going to come to God's word now. So please um, keep your Bibles open there. There's an outline on your handouts um, of this sermon. This is a tricky passage. And so um, I'm going to pray for God to help us. Loving Father, we thank you for all of your word, um, all of it. It's all true and it's all good and it's all useful for teaching us and rebuking us and correcting us and training us uh, so that we will be encouraged and built up and strengthened and know how to honour you with our lives, which we long to do. And so we pray for your help now to understand this part of your word, um, which, is, um, even, which is more complicated than other parts to our eyes, at least, and our minds. So please help us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to think about Satan as well as Jesus a bit this morning as we look at this passage. And we're going to think about the day of uh, the Lord's return. We're going to think about the day of the, referred to as the day of the Lord uh, in the passage and certainly in the Bible um, more broadly. Paul explains to the Thessalonians that um, the reason they can be sure that Jesus hasn't returned yet, because there was some confusion as to whether he'd come back and they'd missed it or something. They were in the toilet and he came back and they came out and I missed it. Um, No, no, you haven't missed it. And we can be sure that you haven't missed it because Satan's still at work. And he's still at work in the church is uh, Paul's kind of explanation for why they can be sure that Jesus hasn't returned yet. And I can assure you that Satan's still at work amongst us too, uh, in the church, in the world, and in the church. uh, Satan is at work. And whilst we're right to believe that we are right to believe that Jesus is far, far, far more powerful than Satan, it's not this kind of cosmic arm wrestle and who's going to win, we don't know, and we hope it's Jesus. No, no. Jesus is exceedingly powerful, all powerful, um, much, infinitely more powerful than Satan. I still think we underestimate the work of the devil uh, in our our church and in our lives, our family lives, and potentially to our detriment. Satan's greatest trick is to convince people that he doesn't exist, particularly uh, in the Western world where we're very distracted uh, by material things. Uh, Not so much in other cultures, particularly in Africa, where they're more in touch with spiritual things. Uh, All this talk about Satan in this chapter caused me to pick up the screw tape letters again. Has anyone read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? It's a great, great book. It's clever. Uh, it's this conversation between the devil and his demons and he's kind of putting them to work. Um, the screw tape letters were written by C.S. Lewis during the Second World War, uh, 1942. It's a defense of the Christian faith and it's written from the perspective of a hypothetical senior devil to a junior devil named Wormwood. <clears throat> and um, Wormwood is charged with the task of leading one, one of God's people astray. And so that's what he tries to do when he tries to think of all these clever ways uh, that he can lead God, distract them from the work of the devil in their lives, uh, distract them with worldly things. It's really clever and and I encourage uh, you to pick it up if you get a chance. How much should we be concerned by the work of the devil and how does a hope-shaped future give us a healthy respect for the devil without giving us a worrying concern about the devil? That's what we're going to think about uh, this morning. Chapter 2 of our letter starts with a church full of people who are being told lies about the coming of Jesus. And it's freaking them out a little bit. Look at verse 1. 
Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word or mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul writes to assure them the day of the Lord has not yet happened. He hasn't come back yet. Um, At the end of Paul's first letter to them, there was concern that their friends who had died, aka fallen asleep, had missed out on heaven somehow. And now a concern is a direct result of false teaching that they too had missed out, that Jesus had been and gone and forgot to take in them, he forgot to take in their friends who had died. Um, But Paul assures them, no, no, that's impossible. Um, Jesus has not come and I've got a good reason why. And now he starts to talk about this man of lawlessness as the reason why they can be assured that Jesus has not yet returned. So who or what is this man of lawlessness? Verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. Now, uh, we, don't, we don't really know exactly what things um, <laughs> Paul told them or what he's talking about there. There's clearly things that Thessalonians know that we don't know, that we haven't been told. We've only got those two letters and there was you know, all this teaching from Paul in this relationship. And so we must approach this passage with great humility um, as we try to work out what it means. Uh, We need to be humble. And in the past, others haven't been as humble as I think we ought to be um, as we come to this passage of Scripture. There's been some very confident assertions of what's going on here in the past. Um, But a great preacher and teacher, Dr. Leon Morris, describes this passage in this way. He says this, This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings. And the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. So it's a tricky part of God's word and we need to come to it with humility. Many, many people have made speculations as to when the supposed rebellion will occur, how long it will last, when the day of the Lord will finally come. Many have have said, oh, it's it's this and it's going to happen. The most common, I think, misconception is uh, a very strong pre-millennialist view that will be revealed and that, that Satan will be revealed and reign for a thousand years before Jesus. So Satan will come into the world and he'll kind of go bananas for a thousand years doing all sorts of terrible things. And then Jesus will come back. And so we'll know that Jesus is going to come back because his reign of terror uh, has begun. And I don't think that's right. And I think I can show you from the passage that that's not true. Um, so let's have a think about who this man of lawlessness is um, so we can think about how this passage uh, uh, works. Uh, the man of lawlessness is given four titles and names here in verses 3 and 4. Um, he's also referred to as the Antichrist by John in two of his letters. The first name we're given um, for the lawless one, for the man of lawlessness here, is, is this lawless one. He's opposed to the law, so we know he's opposed to the law. The second thing we learn is that he's the doomed one. He's the son of destruction. Uh, if, our, if, if in our future we have hope, 
His future is destruction. Uh, thirdly, he's the enemy, we're told, the one who opposes God. He's always working against God. He's opposed to the law. He's opposed to God. He's the son of destruction. And fourthly, a name, a title could be he's, he's the climber or the, he's the trampler. or He's always looking to assert himself above others, to climb on top of others uh, to, get to uh, make himself superior, even trying to climb over on top of trample God. Uh, for me, Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness springs to mind when we think about this man of lawlessness. Uh, Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness to bow uh, before him, and that's what the man of lawlessness seeks to do. He seeks to have the rule and the honour even over God. Throughout history, we've seen this self-assertion in the temple of God moment seemed to have come true. Hang with me here. Uh, it seems to have been these moments where this man of lawlessness has asserted himself in God's temple um, in, in these moments in history. So in 169 BC, uh, Antiochus IV, known as Epiphanes, entered the temple in Jerusalem and he set up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and he sacrificed a pig to desecrate the temple. So 169 BC, we have this man of lawlessness asserting himself in the temple of God moment in history. It seemed a clear fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, uh, verse 8, and also 25, which will be on the screen in a moment. Uh, I'm not going to read through it. You can kind of scan at it if you like. Um, the Jews saw another example of the abomination of desolation in 63 BC in the Roman general Pompey who defeated their nation. He captured Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple by intruding into the Holy of Holies again. Jesus himself was evidently clear that Daniel's prophecy had not been completely fulfilled in either of these moments, Antiochus or Pompey, but awaited a further fulfillment. So this isn't completely fulfilled by these guys. There's a further fulfillment to come. For Jesus repeated or confirmed the prophecy, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee, flee to the mountains. Um, Jesus is probably referring to the Jewish war of AD 66 to 70. Um, he had many times predicted God's coming judgment on the Jewish nation and had clearly warned them of the destruction of the temple, Jesus had. Luke certainly understood the abomination of desolation related to the Roman siege of Jerusalem. As for the temple, it was profaned by Jewish zealots during the war and then by the Roman army in AD 70, who took their, their emperor's image into the temple courts and then offered sacrifices uh, to their pagan uh, uh, images. And then we come to this Apostle Paul. So there's all these moments, I'm going through these moments in history where it seems this has been fulfilled in its completion. This, this, this man of lawlessness has asserted himself in God's temple. Emperor Caligula was another one um, that Paul is probably referring to. Um, but his plans have been frustrated as well. So it seems that Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled time and time again. And you probably didn't catch all those things, and that's okay. The point is that this man of lawlessness isn't just a specific man. There's these moments throughout history where this man of lawlessness moment seems to have happened, where these 
anti-Christ, these people, these ones opposed to God, these men assert themselves against God in his temple, desecrating his temple, setting themselves up as God in place of God throughout history. So this man of lawlessness idea is symbolic in chapter 2. Are you with me? It's symbolic. If we are right in suggesting that sitting in God's temple, chapter 2, verse 4, is a symbol of arrogance and even blasphemy rather than a specific reference to Herod's temple in Jerusalem all these other moments, then if that's the case, if it's not just these moments, if it's symbolic, then the rest of the picture that Paul paints of a rebellion is, is global. It's on a global scale. It's not isolated to Rome, okay? This rebellion that Paul refers to is global and it's symbolic. It's not just a moment in time. And therefore, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is an eschatological figure. There's an, there's an end time reality as well as these contemporary figures that seem to fit the bill. In John's letters, I mentioned, he refers to this antichrist, the one who would deny the resurrection of the Christ. And indeed, anybody who does not recognise Jesus as the risen Lord is antichrist. So this process of reinterpretation and reapplication within the scripture itself from Daniel through to Jesus, through Paul and John, it gives us an important flexibility to our understanding rather than being rigid in our interpretation. I hope you're following along. It prepares us for the conclusion that the biblical prediction of the Antichrist during the course of church history most likely has had and still will have multiple fulfilments there'll be multiple fulfilments of this this antichrist person or moment the man of lawlessness has come in the form of many throughout history the rebellion as such has been happening already for many centuries and continues today rather than at one moment there's going to be this thousand years where satan comes and reigns um, it's been happening. This man of lawlessness moment has been happening. The rebellion has already been occurring against God throughout history. So we're unwise to look for one particular moment or man of lawlessness in such a way as to pronounce all others false. I know that some are pronouncing Putin to be the man of lawlessness today. Or some are pronouncing that the world's billionaires who are banding together in the name of climate change they're the man of lawlessness. Um, but I disagree. Some say today they are definitely the one man of lawlessness spoken of in the Bible, proving that Satan will soon be revealed, proving that Jesus will be back this year. I've heard this prophecy. Jesus will be back before Christmas is what I've heard. For sure. And we know for sure because of the pandemic and because of what's going on with this climate change stuff and blah, 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 Right? Jesus will be back, 100%. And there's been prophecy after prophecy after prophecy throughout history. Jesus will definitely be back this year. And the year ends. And they're like, oh, sorry, I got it wrong. Three years time, yeah, definitely. I got it this time, this time. I'm <laughs> Trust me. No. We don't know. And this, there's been symbolic fulfillments of this, and we've, therefore this rebellion is ongoing. Okay. 
there will be more. There will be more predictions. This year will end. I presume Jesus will probably not return. I hope he does, but he probably won't. And again, there'll be predictions down the track um, of this man of lawlessness moment. Matthew 24, 36 explicitly says, explicitly, sometimes you have to use our theology to work out what the Bible is saying or you context. Sometimes it's just explicit. Matthew 24, 36 says, you do not know when Jesus will return. It says he doesn't know, but only the Father knows when Jesus will return. We cannot know the moment or the hour when Jesus will return. Okay. That was the easy bit. <sighs> now we're on to the hard bit. Verses 6 to 8. You ready? Um, this is kind of like the last climb to the summit of the mountain. This is especially for Jono. He'll kind of really appreciate this. Uh, this is the summit of the mountain in this sermon, and then it's a cruisy downhill walk from there. Okay. We're going to think about the coming of the lawless one and also who the restrainer is and who's being restrained. Um, Verse 6. Now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. Um, if you're following along in your notes, I've got a little excursus here named Who's Restraining Who in the Zoo? Um, who's the restrainer and who are they restraining and what's going on? That's the one. Thanks, Kez. Okay. Who, who's holding who back? Um, I want you to have a think, who you think, um, as we go along. Kind of think, oh, yeah, who is holding who back and whatnot? Um, the instinct, I think, understandably, is God is holding Satan back. That's the instinct. God's holding Satan back so Satan can't you know, just go bananas and do really, really evil things. Um, who, who was, who's thinking that? God's holding Satan back. You want to be bold and confess that? Yeah, that's really common. Um, but I don't think it's right. Verse 7 says, um, he will hold him back. The restrainer will hold this being back until the restrainer is taken out of the way so if god's the restrainer at some point god's going to get taken out of the way well that doesn't make sense god's never going to get taken out of the way um god's always going to be god so it can't be god's holding satan back i don't believe um the most common theory among scholars is actually the government is holding satan back The government's restraining Satan. So Romans 13, which I preached on in the middle of the pandemic, that was exciting, preaching about submitting to the government's rule in the pandemic um, was tricky. Um, Romans 13, Paul speaks about, Paul, who was imprisoned by the government, who, you know, had a hard time with the government, he speaks plainly about the good role of the government to restrain evil. So that theory makes a lot of sense. It makes some sense that the role of the government in our lands and in all lands is to restrain evil, therefore to restrain um, Satan. I actually um, listened to a whole bunch of talks on Romans 13 by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said the very best we can expect from the government is to prevent chaos, is to just hold evil back, uh, which I think our government does, largely. But 
If you look across the world and history, you'll see that governments also function in this man of lawlessness capacity sometimes, don't they? Um, the Roman emperors we just looked at functioned as, as this man of lawlessness being. Uh, North Korea, Hitler, Stalin. These, these were not good evil restrainers. They were evil people doing evil things. They were lawless themselves. They were the archetypal men of lawlessness themselves. So I feel very uncomfortable with that theory as well, that I'm trying to kind of present... The, <laughs> It's a complicated passage and I don't want to boldly assert what I think is absolutely right. I want to kind of make an argument and you can go away and think about it. I'm not comfortable with the idea that the government's restraining Satan because there's so many evil governments across the world and across uh, history. Now, a good friend of mine who isn't here today, Mick, Mick Heim, he pointed me to a paper written by a, um, a bishop of Sydney, Michael Stead, I had Michael said as a fourth year lecturer in Old Testament in Zechariah. Amazing. It was so good. Fantastic. He's got a theory which I'm going to present to you, and I think it's right myself, but you work it out, you know, you have to think about it yourself. Um, we're going to work hard and we're going to kind of look at the Bible more broadly to try to justify what our thinking is. Um, so here's the theory, okay? Now, when it comes to verse 6, the NIV. And now you know what's holding him back, so they may be revealed at the proper time. And the NRSV, you know what's now restraining him, so he may be revealed when his time comes. There's different translations of the Bible. And the ESV, you know what's restraining him, so they may be revealed in his time. And the NR, and the, what's the other one I've got? Holman. And you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. And then there's the New King James says... And now you know what's restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Um, there's a word in the first four translations that isn't in the last one. Can anyone tell me what it is? Him. Him is there all four times. Um, next slide. There it is. But not in the last translation. Michael Stead thinks, and I agree, that's an over-translation. And actually, in this case, not always, but in this case, the New King James has it right. Um, that him is actually not helpful. Now you know what is restraining, that he, the restraining one, may be revealed in his own time. And it's not really a him that's being restrained necessarily. Um, so we could read verse 6 like this. And now you know, Thessalonians, in other words, you experience the oppression, the restraining, until he's revealed in his time. Okay, so you Thessalonians, you are experiencing, you're experiencing restraining until this restraining one is revealed in his proper time. I think that's the best translation for this verse. And that changes everything, doesn't it? If it's the Thessalonians being restrained, it's Satan who's restraining them until he's revealed in his proper time. So my theory, Michael Stead's theory, for you to ponder, <laughs> is that Satan is restraining the church. Satan's a restrainer, and it's the church that's being held back, which has got a lot of biblical support, I think. 
in the last letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Have a little look if you want. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul talks about Satan hindered us. Satan blocked our way, Paul writes. Um, don't need to look at these ones. I'll just whip through them. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, Satan's described as the oppressor of the church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Satan's described as the adversary of the church, prowling around like a roaring lion. He's described as the accuser in Revelation 12 and the destroyer in Revelation chapter 9. And here, I believe, he's described as the one who is holding them, is restraining them, is holding them back. Satan sets himself up as God, proclaiming himself to be God. And the church in Thessalonica would be familiar with this concept. But I think we perhaps don't think about the role of Satan enough. And so when we come to this passage, we go, what? Um, Satan's secret and mysterious power has really helpfully kind of um, thrown open for us as an idea in the screw tape letters. Satan's secret and mysterious power is at work in the world and is at work in the church in ways we don't really see or understand. So we could read the passage like this on the screen. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, the oppressor himself, until he's taken from the midst, that is, from the midst of God's people. Clearly the day of the Lord has not yet come because Satan's power continues to be at work in the world and in the church. The rebellion, Satan's rebellion against God is still at work. Satan is restraining God's people and is restraining God's church at least as much as he's able to do. Jesus is far more powerful than Satan, but Satan does have some power and he does have some influence and he does hold us back. But ultimately, nothing can stand in the way of God's kingdom coming and growing and being consummated on the day of the Lord. All that, on that day, all things will be brought to light, including the evil works of the devil. The devil will be exposed. He will stand naked and powerless on that day before the great and glorious Lord Jesus, who we're told will be dealt with by the breath of the Lord. Such is the power of Jesus. He won't need his fists or his muscles or just his breath will consume and destroy the work of the devil. So we can reread verse 8 like this. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will destroy with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the manifestation of his coming. Does that read well? And does that make sense? That's for you to decide. There'll be no resisting the splendor of the king for Satan. He'll be swiftly dealt with in the day he's revealed and the day he's destroyed will be one and the same day. He'll be exposed and destroyed. No thousand years of terror. Exposed, destroyed. Same day, same moment. No bizarre rule by God's people. No bizarre rule by Satan. Just the coming of the Lord, like a thief in the night, Satan exposed and dealt with. How good will that be? Nobody will miss it. No one will miss out. All... We'll see Jesus coming, as we're told in the last chapter, with blazing fire and the holy angels, and Satan will be revealed and destroyed and dealt with. I think that makes most sense. You can work it out for yourself too. The day of the Lord will be a wonderful and terrible day. All will rise. 
Some to everlasting joy, some to everlasting destruction. And we talked about this more last week. Now, again, it seems clear that Paul is speaking generally in verses 9 to 12. We're on the, we're on the downside of the mountain to the clear crystal lake that we can have a swim in for 30 seconds because it's freezing. Um, he's not speaking about a specific moment in time, which makes much more sense. He's speaking about this present age. Satan has and will continue to use signs and wonders to convince people to believe in different men of lawlessness that will pop up throughout time. And we might be right that different world rulers, I don't want to name anybody, uh, uh, pictures of men of lawlessness and more will come. But we, will not, we cannot say, oh, therefore Jesus is coming back. There will be these people who are opposed to God and who lead people astray. The Bible promises that. Men of lawlessness talk a big game. They seem impressive. They have Satan's cunning and guile by their side. But tragically, he's not on their side. But people will believe the lie and they will follow them. And people will be deceived and subsequently they will perish. In verse 10, they'll perish because instead of believing the truth of the Bible, they believe the lie, which is where we come in as evangelists, helping people to believe the truth of the Bible. People... Romans 1 is so clear. People have an opportunity to know God. God's made himself clear, but tragically, they will buy the lie and perish. What are the great lies of our day and our culture? Wealth will save you. You just need enough money. Green energy will save us, right? Solar and wind and whatever, that's going to save us. It's good. It's, we've got solar panels on the roof. They're great. Um, keep electricity bill going, it's awesome. But it's not our great saviour. It's not anyone's great saviour. We also worship the self now so much that in our culture we firmly believe we have the right, we choose our gender. Or we can choose to be an animal. Or we choose when we die. Now in New South Wales as well. These are all, this is all God's business. It's estimated that in Australia in the past decade or so, 800 babies have been born alive after failed terminations and left to die on their own with no care or pain relief. This is a protest against this terrible horror that's happening in our culture. Our country is greatly deceived by the evil one and in increasing ways we as a nation are opposing God more and more and making ourselves out to be God, choosing gender, choosing when we die. As Christians, we mustn't forget the devil's at work in our world, in our country and even in our church. And a healthy appreciation of the work of Satan ought not lead us to fear or dread, but to Jesus, to our Lord, who has ultimate power, even over Satan, even over the demons. The demons shuddered and fled at the face of Jesus. It ought to lead us to prayer and to care about the evil that's happening in our country and in our world. The consequence of Satan's work is that God sends a delusion so that people continue to believe the lie rather than the truth. Next slide, thanks, Kiz. They choose Satan's deceit over God's truth. 
Romans 1, Paul writes that God gives people over to their sinful desires and that is what we see here too in Thessalonians. What a wonderful day it will be, friends, when Satan is defeated and no longer is opposed, no longer opposes God. No longer will sin have a foothold in our nation and our world. What a terrible day, though, for those who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and submitted to him as their king. So until that day, what do we do? Well, judgment will not be our fate, will it? Because our trust is in Christ. We trust in Jesus. We submit our lives to him. We seek to submit our children's lives to his rule as best as we possibly can, knowing that God is in control of us and our children. But look with me at verse 13 in your Bibles. But we always, knowing this, all this, we've said all this, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. We're followers of Jesus, loved dearly by God, saved by the work of the Holy Spirit, seated in the heavenly realms in Christ, we're told in Paul's letter of the Ephesians, chapter 2. Jesus says, no one can snatch us from his hand in John's gospel, those God has given to him. God has declared that we are saved and on that last day we'll be called into heavenly dwellings with our Lord Jesus. And until that day, stand firm says Paul, hold fast to the teachings that we've been given. We may suffer as we wait, but we do not suffer in vain and we do not suffer as those without hope. Our willingness to suffer in Jesus' name brings God glory and we're promised that God strengthens us through our suffering. Hold fast to the teachings that have been passed on to you. Brothers and sisters, are you holding fast to the teachings? You're here, so I figure you are. Two things to finish. I've said them already, so I'll be brief. Satan is like a roaring lion still. He might have had his teeth taken out, but he's looking, he's, he's looking for someone to devour. And his greatest trick is to encourage us to ignore him and be distracted with other things and forget that he exists. But he does exist and he is at work. And we must resist him, and we resist him with the word of God. And we resist him with prayer for one another. As I said last week, pray for one another. Pray for one another spiritually. Pray for your spiritual needs. Pray for protection against the evil one. Especially pray for those <coughs> protection for those in leadership over the church. Like any smart person in a war, Satan wants to take down leaders, if he can, to have a greater impact Pray for ministers, pray for growth group leaders, pray for children's and youth ministry leaders. But Satan won't have any impact on them, even though he might try. Pray for leaders. Satan seeks to restrain us, but we have God's Holy Spirit. So stand firm is the second thing. And it's, a, it's an active thing. It's a, it's a thing you have to do. You can't just kind of stand passively like I am now. Talking about standing actively like you do in the surf. When a wave comes, you kind of lean in against the wave. Stand firm. 
Be grounded in God's word daily. Be grounded in Christian fellowship as you are. You're here. Every one of us is needed to build a body. Every one of you is needed to build one another up, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. Everyone's needed in the body to build one another up, to stay on track, to live for Jesus, to resist the devil, to not give in to temptation, but to be ever vigilant. We all need one another. Um, Lara and I visited Africa many years ago and we saw, we, we drove through the middle of the great migration. Every year, two million zebra and wildebeest migrate um, from the bottom to the top and we, we were there. Zebra and wildebeest work together. They have a symbiotic relationship. They hang out together. They often stand head to tail, zebra and wildebeest. And the reason is zebra have great eyesight and wildebeest have great hearing. And so they hang out together to warn one another of predators, of lions who might be prowling around. We hang out together. We stick together. Some of us have better eyesight than others. Some of us may be better hearing. We all have different gifts and skills and we, we hang out together and we protect one another from the advances of the evil one until that great and glorious day when the Lord comes. Let me conclude by praying Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians in verse 16 and 17 for us all. Let me pray. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. In the name of Christ. Amen.